This, of course, is a special day for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day, but on Easter Sunday, we refocus on the cornerstone of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, that is not what Easter means to many people. I quote, Easter is an international event. All around the world, no matter where you go, you will find the celebration of Easter. The following list is an example of what you will find in various countries. In Belgium, people will be busily hiding their loved one's shoes and then demanding witty forfeits for their return. In Poland, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia, young people will slosh water on village girls. In Austria, people will cut brushwood and encourage the revelers to whack each other on the shoulders to wish them good luck. In Italy, outside the cathedral in Florence, the people will set ablaze an ox cart full of fireworks. In Scandinavia, they will bring out their special seasonal Easter beer. In Rio de Janeiro, the hangovers from Carnival will begin at last to clear their heads. And in America, people will eat chocolate rabbits, candy, and eggs. They'll wear their spring clothes and have Easter egg hunts for kids, except in Montana where we sometimes wear our winter clothes and have snowball fights, but (laughs) not this year. But that's the way Easter is all around the world. It is a bewildering mixture of ancient faith and folklore, a mixture of Christianity and paganism. In fact, Easter is really a combination of three things. The Jewish Passover, the Christian celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and pagan rites of fertility and spring. The term Easter is not really a Christian term at all. It is the name of the ancient Anglo-Saxon goddess of light, Eastor. Easter celebrations actually predated Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus was added later to all the themes that already existed. Let me explain. In ancient times, the egg was the symbol of fertility and a symbol of the sun because of the color of the yolk. And there were certain Easter rites attached to the worship of these things, and that is where the Easter egg comes from. Have you ever wondered how rabbits got into the scene since rabbits have nothing to do with eggs? In ancient Egypt, the rabbit was the symbol of birth, for obvious reasons. Other ancient people considered rabbits to be the symbol of the moon. So rabbits were connected with spring when things come alive, and they were the symbol of the moon. By the way, rabbits also found their way into the celebration of Easter before Christianity ever came. And then there's the modern, more modern story of a poor, woman, a poor woman in Germany who lived during a time of famine. The story says that she managed to get some eggs for her hungry children, and to make it special, she hid the eggs on Easter. As the children discovered them in a bush, a rabbit jumped out. So the legend began that the rabbit brought the eggs to feed the hungry children, and the Easter bunny was born. It's quite interesting to see how all of these elements found their way into the celebration of Easter. But as you stop to think about it and consider these things, you can begin to see how Satan subtly draws people away from the true importance and true significance of this holiday. 
It's almost as if he throws everything he can into the mix just to get people to celebrate anything other than what is most significant, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, not only does Satan seek to sidetrack people, distract them, he even has people make outright denials of the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, Easter Sunday of 1990 in Dallas, Texas, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, the then leader of Church Universal and Triumphant, said this, and I quote, It is the teaching of Jesus that retaining the body is actually the retaining of a focus of karma in the earth, and it does hold up the progress of the soul. There is no resurrection of the body, but of the soul, end quote referring to the biblical position of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. She said this, quote, I want to tell you that this is the position of a fallen angel in whom the divine spark has gone out, end quote. Beloved, that is an outright denial of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ as taught in the Word of God. It is no wonder that Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be found true, but every man a liar. Anyone who is intellectually honest has to face the truth of the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus himself, as well as his apostles, placed a lot of emphasis on the resurrection. They gave it far more emphasis than we do today. So by way of introduction into our message this morning, I want us to look at a few of the passages where Jesus mentions his resurrection. We're going to begin in the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. So turn with me in your Bible to Matthew, chapter 16. This event took place, Matthew tells us, in the region of Caesarea Philippi, in a location today known as Banyas where there is a huge rock wall, a large cave. The river in Jesus' day flowed right out of the cave. It was referred to by one rabbi as the gates of Hades. All of that important background to this event. Verse 13, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. And there's a little play on words here in the original. You are Petros, little stone. And on this Petra, huge, massive rock, I shall build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. The deity of Jesus Christ, 
who he is, that Peter confessed, the, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that is the rock foundation of the church, and his resurrection verifies his claims to deity. That is why once the disciples began to or finally grasp who he was as expressed by Peter's proclamation, Jesus began to show them that he had to die and rise again. Look at chapter 17, very next chapter. Verse 22 tells us, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. Jesus wanted his disciples to get this message. Look at chapter 20 of the same gospel, just a couple pages over to the right. Chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. All of these events took place in the latter part of Jesus' ministry. As he was concluding, he wanted the disciples to understand the significance of this event. But Jesus not only ended his ministry by emphasizing this fact, he began his ministry by emphasizing this fact. Let me show you what I mean. Go from the first gospel to the fourth gospel to John chapter 20. This is in the very early days of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 2, I'm sorry, John chapter 2. These, these events took place in the very early days of Jesus' ministry. In the first few verses of this chapter, Jesus performed his first miracle in Cana of Galilee as he turned water into wine. And then when he left there and went to Jerusalem, we read in verse 13, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned their tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you, do, do you show to us since you do these things? In other words, what's your authority? What gives you the right to do this? And I want you to notice Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had been risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Notice what happened on this occasion. To start his public ministry, Jesus turns water into wine in Cana of Galilee. He goes to Jerusalem, cleanses the temple, and they say, What is your authority? He says, I'll tell you my authority. Here is my authority. You kill me, and in three days... I will be raised. Basically, Jesus was saying this. I have the authority to do this, and I will rise from the dead as proof of that. If I don't rise from the dead, don't believe anything I ever said. Don't believe anything. Jesus staked his credibility on one thing, an empty tomb. 
Jesus emphasized the importance of his resurrection. And John tells us that after the resurrection, the disciples finally began to get the picture. They picked up on the importance of the resurrection, and it became the theme of their lives, the theme of their ministries, the theme of their proclamation. For example, turn to the next book, the book of Acts, chapter 2. In Acts 2, we have the birthday of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The three biggest festivals for the Jewish people are the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Passover. So this is one of the big three in Acts chapter 2. Jews from all over the world would flood to Jerusalem for this event. And this was the time when God in His sovereignty determined to send the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit came, He manifested Himself in some unique ways. And that gave Peter an opportunity to to make a proclamation as all of this large crowd was gathered there on the southern steps of the temple. And notice the subject of Peter's talk, his proclamation. Chapter 2 of Acts, verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make, no, you will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. That was the focus of Peter's very first sermon, the resurrection of Jesus. Then in chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. Along the way, they come across a lame man. Peter heals him. Again, this gives Peter an opportunity to say something. And again, Peter's theme is the resurrection. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you look so intently at us as though we, by our own power or goodness, made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Again, the pinnacle of Peter's proclamation here is the resurrection. Then in chapter 4, Peter and John get in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And the reason they got in trouble was because they were continuing to talk about the resurrection. This was very unsettling to the Jewish leaders of the day, understandably. 
So in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together in Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power, by what name have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, you see, the focus of what Peter had to say in his defense was the resurrection. Near the end of this chapter, Luke adds a comment. Notice down in verse 32, we read, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, notice this, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Well, as you might guess, eventually the apostles were thrown into prison for continuing to talk about the resurrection. And when they were brought before the council to give an defense, guess what they talked about? You got it, the resurrection. Look at chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. You see, the resurrection was the theme of the life of the early church. It was the focus of their proclamation. And when the apostle Paul came on the scene, he simply followed suit. It was the focus of his preaching. For example, look at chapter 13 of, of Acts. This is when Paul took his very first missionary journey, he and Barnabas. And notice their proclamation in verse 26. Chapter 13, verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God to you, the word of this salvation has been sent for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their fathers because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath have fulfilled them in condemning him. And and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now watch this but God raised him from the dead. This was Paul's first sermon on his first missionary journey, and the focus was the resurrection. 
We won't turn to it, but in Acts chapter 17, when Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, he went into the synagogue, and Dr. Luke tells us he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. In Acts chapter 24, when Paul was out at Caesarea by the sea and on trial before Felix, he spoke of the resurrection. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul was still in Caesarea by the sea under arrest, he was on trial before King Agrippa, he spoke of the resurrection. And when you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see him continually referring to the resurrection. Here's a quick sampling. Romans 6, 4, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4, 14, He who raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up also. Galatians 1, 1, By Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Ephesians 1, 20, Which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Philippians 3, 10, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. Colossians 2, 12, God who has raised Him from the dead. 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, His Son whom he raised from the dead. I'm sure you get the point. The resurrection is of primary importance to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there is no resurrection, Jesus is a farce. He's a phony. He's a fake. If there's no resurrection, Christianity is a joke. In fact, it is the resurrection of Jesus that sets apart Christianity from all other major world religions. You don't have a scenario in any other major world religion where the founder said, basically, I am true, and the way you will know I am true is when I am raised from the dead. No other religious founder ever made such a claim. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us specific negative consequences if there is no resurrection. Skip the book of Romans, which is next after Acts, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Paul says here, if there is no resurrection, here are the seven consequences. One, Christ is still dead. Two, the gospel is useless and powerless. Three, faith is empty and meaningless. Four, the apostles are all liars. Five, sin's power is unbroken and we're still slaves to sin. Six, the dead are eternally damned. And seven, Christians are the world's most pitiful people. But verse 20 says, Now is Christ risen from the dead. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That is basically saying that the resurrection was the proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. 
Beloved, if God had not accepted Jesus' sacrifice for our sins as our substitute, then you and I would have to pay for our own sin eternally. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. We would have to spend eternity in hell for paying for sin if Jesus' sacrifice had not been acceptable. But the resurrection is proof positive that the death of Jesus was the acceptable payment for your sin and my sin. Now do you see why the first century Christians talked about the resurrection so much? It is the crux of Christianity. It's the foundation of Christianity. It's the core of Christianity. In fact, because the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, Sunday, the early church changed their day of worship from Saturday Sabbath to Sunday. That's why we meet together every Sunday, the first day of the week. We do so as a continual testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said this, and I quote, To set apart Easter Sunday for special memory of the resurrection is a human device for which there is no scriptural command, but to make every Lord's Day an Easter Sunday is due to him who rose early on the first day of the week. We gather on the first day of the week rather than upon the seventh day of the week because redemption is even a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration. Like the apostles, we meet on the first day of the week and hope that Jesus may stand in our midst and say, Peace be unto you. Every first day of the week, we should meditate upon the rising of our Lord and seek to enter fellowship with Him in His risen life. End quote. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, now is Christ risen from the dead. But what difference does it make? Practically speaking, what difference does it make? Frankly, to some people, it makes no difference at all. None. It's simply a part of their religious beliefs. Their lives aren't any different as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's probably true of some of you here this morning. Your life is, practically speaking, no different as a result of the resurrection. Yet Romans 6.3 says, As Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That is, Jesus Christ conquered the grave to give us new life. He didn't just conquer the grave to have us amuse ourselves with that fact or for us to place it in a doctrinal statement somewhere and shelve it. Jesus Christ conquered the grave to give us new life. In fact, those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ were spiritually speaking, speaking risen with him. Let me show you what I mean. Turn past 2 Corinthians and Galatians to the letter of Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. This passage, passage describes what happened when we trusted Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who, works, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. Now that is a description of men and women without the life of Christ. 
dead in sin, unable to respond to God, walking according to the course of this world, influenced by Satan, driven by the flesh, destined for the wrath of God. That's our natural condition, all of us. The contrast comes in verse 4. One of the greatest contrasts, the most stark contrast in Scripture, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, when an individual comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that person is given new life. We are given resurrection life. And that life is simply received by faith in Jesus Christ. But it's amazing how many people come to Easter services like this one year after year after year, and yet they don't have new life because they've never personally trusted Jesus Christ. So there's no confusion as to what new life is. Let me mention a few of the most common substitutes people use today. These are common substitutes for new life. Number one on the list, morality. Many people assume that if they lead a good moral life, then they have resurrection life. But listen to what, to what Jesus said to a group of the most moral individuals that have ever lived. That's not an overstatement. These were some of the most moral people who ever lived, and Jesus said this to them. I'll just read it to you from Matthew 23. He says in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Please understand that morality is not a valid indicator as to whether or not you have new life. Many moral people are just that. They're moral. But they don't have the resurrection life of Christ. Mor morality is not a valid indicator as to whether or not you have new life. It's a cheap substitute. Here's a second one. Another common substitute is knowledge or intellectual assent. You see, many people know that Jesus Christ died and rose again. If you were to go out on this day, just out in the community and do a survey and ask people, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Many, many people in society would say, yes, yeah, I believe that. They'll assent to the fact, but that's all it is. It is simply a mental assent to certain facts. It makes no difference in their lives whatsoever. It's why James said what he did in James 2.19. You believe that there is one God, good for you. The demons also believe and tremble. In other words, the demons will assent to facts, but they don't allow it to change them. And many people in our world are in that same category. They believe the fact of the resurrection, but they don't let it change their lives. Intellectual assent or mental assent does not grant you new life. But here's the third one. Probably the most common substitution for new life today is religion or religious activity. People assume that because they are religious or because they are involved in religious activity, then they must have resurrection life. 
But Jesus' words ring loud and clear in Matthew 7, 21, where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? In other words, Lord, look at all of our religious credentials. And then maybe the scariest verse in the Bible, Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Religion damns people to hell more effectively than anything I know. Religious activity does not indicate new life. It doesn't mean you have new life. So what does? What are valid indicators of new life? What is evidence that you have resurrection life? I'll list a few items for you. Before I do, but before I do, I want to emphasize something very strongly. Please hear this. These things don't give you new life. Resurrection life can't be earned. It can't be achieved. These are the results of new life. The new life that is received simply by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Resurrection life is obtained by receiving Jesus Christ, but these are some of the results of new life or indicators of new life. Let me give you a brief list. Number one, love for God or love for Christ. Those who have received resurrection life have a strong, vibrant, passionate love for God, for Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 5 says that when we place faith in Jesus Christ, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. 1 John 2, 5 says, Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. And by this, listen, by this we know we are in him. By this love, this driving love for God and his son Jesus Christ. When the new life of Christ takes root in your life, you will have a driving love for God and, Je- and for his son Jesus Christ. That is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, a very shocking statement, if anyone does not love our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. The word anathema means to be damned eternally. If anyone does not love our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned eternally. If you don't love Jesus Christ, you will be damned. Eternal life manifests itself by a love for Jesus Christ. Secondly, number two, a second evidence of new life is love for other believers. Unsaved people don't naturally love Christians. Oh, they may have a few friends here or there, but as a whole, unsaved people don't love the people of God. Thus, when you are born in the family of God, there is a radical change accomplished in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You love God's people. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. We know it because we love the people of God. If you don't love God or His family, it's an indication you don't have new life. A third indication of new life, third evidence, is spiritual fruit. You see, if there's no growth, no fruit, no change, how can someone claim there is life? Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13, and he said that if the Word of God really takes root, then it will produce fruit in your life. So what is fruit? 
Well, when the Bible speaks of fruit, it includes many things, such as spiritual growth, growth in righteousness, ministry to other people, supporting the work of God, character changes in your life. All of these things fall under the category of proof. But listen, you don't produce fruit to gain new life. You grow as a result of new life working within. And then fourthly, a fourth indication of new life, a fourth evidence is obedience, keeping the Word of God. Turn over right near the end of the New Testament, all the way over near the end to the little letter of 1 John. It's almost easier to find the book of Revelation and back up a few little letters. 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2, verse 3 says this, now by this, chapter 2, verse 3, now by this we know that we know him. Well, how do we know? What is the proof? What is the evidence? If we keep his commandments, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is the liar, and the truth is not in him. Obedience, John says, keeping the word of God is an evidence of new life. It's a proof of resurrection life. So let me ask you a question this morning, and please don't, don't tune me out. Don't, don't check out. Do you have resurrection life? Honestly. Do you have resurrection life pulsing through your heart and soul? Are you walking in newness of life? Examine your life this morning. Take these four evidences and ask yourself this kind of, these kinds of questions. Do you have an intense, obedient love for the Lord Jesus Christ and a giving, sacrificial love for other believers? Are you growing spiritually? Are you producing fruit in your life? Are you walking in the Spirit so He can display His fruit in your life? Do you long to keep the Word of God? Do you desire to obey the Word of God? Do you have an ongoing, dynamic, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't have resurrection life, then attending an Easter service isn't going to give it to you. You need to humble yourself before God and invite Jesus Christ into your life. You need to ask Him to take your sin away and to give you new resurrection life. He is the only person who can give you new life. I can't give you new life. I'm not asking you to come to me today. I'm asking you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. All things have passed away, and new things have come, because that's what happens in the life of every man, every woman, who truly trusts Jesus Christ. Don't leave this Easter service without resurrection life beating in your heart, pulsing through your being, because that's what it's all about. Let's bow together as we close. As we close here in the couple minutes that remain, again, I urge you to think about those four evidences, four indicators of new life, and examine your own life and see, do you really have resurrection life? Do you love God passionately? Do you love Jesus Christ fervently? Do you love the people of God? Is fruit being produced in your life by the Holy Spirit of God, changing your character, 
growing you in righteousness? Do you have a, a, a desire, an intense desire to obey the Word of God? Learn it and keep it? If not, if, these, if those things aren't true of you, then whatever you think you have, it's a cheap substitute for genuine new life. This is the day we celebrate resurrection life. This would be the perfect day to receive Jesus Christ and experience his life-changing power as evidenced in the resurrection. Right where you are seated this very moment, in the quietness of your own heart, humble yourself before God. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to come into your life, to take control, to change you, to make you who he wants you to be. Father, deliver us from having the resurrection be merely something that we contemplate and something that we talk about, but not something that affects us personally. We see in so many places in your word, the intent of the resurrection is to change our lives in a powerful and dramatic way. And that's the way we want to live our lives. So in closing this morning, we pray for anyone who is here in our midst and surely in a crowd this size, there are some who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, personally as Lord and Savior. They've never experienced his resurrection life. May your Holy Spirit draw them, cause them to let go of whatever is holding them back. And may this very moment, this very day, they humble themselves before you and receive Jesus Christ by faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.